And this episode of The Running Public is brought to you by us and The Running Public Training Plan. This running plan has everything we ever talk about on any Training Tuesday, all compiled into one all-encompassing training plan. Now, it's an OCR-specific training plan, but 95% of this is just running. So it doesn't matter if you're training for an OCR or a marathon or whatever. It all is in there. Speed work, threshold, hill work, up, down, long run, long qualities, and plenty of compromised running. Everything we talk about is just waiting for you. That's right. The hardest part about creating your own training schedule is deciding what to do the next day or that day. We take care of that for you, which I think is worth the uh, $19.99 a month in itself. It's cheap, right? And you can cancel at any time. If you've been curious about it or you don't know how to put together all the knowledge we share on the podcast into your own training plan, it's a no-brainer. Where can people go find this uh, this training plan and get signed up, Bragging? On our beautiful website, therunningpublic.com, $19.99 a month, cancel anytime you want. You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday. All right. Uh, we, got, we got hot mics here, Bracken. We're both smiling. It's a good day. Yeah, you must have something good you want to start with. Uh, and I think, you, I think you're going to know what I'm referring to right when I ask you this, but... Um, has anybody ever told you <clears throat> that you look like Kenny G? Uh, once. What? I I used to get Bob, when I had hair, I get Bob Saget. Oh, Kenny, all the time. Kenny G all the way. Nobody's told you that you look like Kenny G ever. Well, I checked my phone this morning and I had a text meme in my phone and i'm assuming that person sent it to you as well they did if you're listening and have your phone or computer available just just google kenny g and if you put permed hair on your head and like a saxophone in your hand there ain't much difference bracken maybe a little difference no 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 it, it's not it's the one picture it's the one i don't picture. look like him it's the one picture all right well Maybe we'll put maybe we'll put that as the uh, the episode icon. But there is a photo of Kenny G out there that literally looks like you with a wig, and it's fantastic. Yeah, the one that was waiting on my phone this morning, I thought he photoshopped my face onto it. <laughs> Marquette, you dog! I saw him at Decca, Chicago. Okay, looking beastly as usual. He is hard to kill. Why are you smiling this morning? <sighs> Had a good conversation this morning. Had a couple good conversations. It's a good day. Days looking up. This is my first week of full schedule training. Mm. I'm deadlifting and squatting today. Fantastic. You're ready to bear load. Yeah, it's not going to be heavy. It'll probably be 70% of what I would normally be doing, but it's a firm step forward. Are all restrictions lifted for you with post hernia surgery now? Yeah, everything is, is go by feel at this point. That's fantastic. And you know what? Macaulay's home. Hey, Macaulay, why aren't you on the line right now? 
he's working. I didn't even know he was coming into the U.S. And my mom said, oh, that might be McCullough. I need to check that phone. Like, All right. I didn't know you're waiting on a text from your son from Hungary. She's like, yeah, he just landed. We're going to go pick him up in a little bit. So I got to work out with him a little bit this weekend, which is always delightful. Is he around maybe to have a, a roundtable Friday episode discussion this week if we wanted? Yes, we can. I like chatting with your brother. He'd be good to have on. We should do that then. Mm-hmm. Well, congratulations. You're back, finally. Hopefully, uh, one of the last conversations we have to have about your ramp back up into training. Well, speaking of the ramp back up, after chatting with Matt Fitzgerald, we're talking about pacing and everything. I brought up that pace-proof workout I really like to do. I decided I'm not going to time trial. Every time I come out of surgery, I time trial the treadmill challenge or a 5K, and I'm sick of it. Well, and usually you're left a little frustrated, right? You're never where you want to be. It's never good, and it's always exactly where I expect it's going to be, but a little worse, and I hate it. But then like six weeks later, it's much better, so I'm just going to skip that. I did pace-proof in in order to soften the blow. Kirk, it didn't soften the blow. (laughs) What happened? (laughs) I just went out, and I said, I'm going to run. I'm just going to slip under six for a mile on 60 seconds rest until either my feet, my calves, my hips, my breathing, something tells me pull the plug okay i haven't run on pavement since surgery and i did it on the bike path out one mile rest back one mile macaulay got on a bike next to me ran and and so i had company i had motivation i made it four reps at six minute pace 556 558 556 558 that doesn't surprise me at all and that's okay on 60 seconds rest after not taking impact like that, after really not being able to do anything, you couldn't even laugh or sneeze, let alone walk or run. I would be happy with that. And then I open up my phone mm-hmm. and my podcast partner did 18 miles at a low six pace throughout there. And and I know comparison is the thief of joy and all that, but it doesn't mm-hmm. change the fact that we're competitive humans. And it was a reminder of how far there is to go. Mm. Now, that was equal parts depressing and invigorating. So I'm not complaining. This isn't a pity party. (laughs) It was just funny to look at where we are because when we started this podcast, it was reversed. I was relatively fit and you were were not running for a large chunk. Five months off. Yeah, five months Mm -hmm. off. So the the tables have turned. Uh, I got it out of the way. There's a lot of room for improvement, but it was the dichotomy was humorous to me. Do you know what the ironic thing we've talked about this before, but like the irony is, is that since I've returned to running, I started running back. I took five months off due to two stress, three stress fractures in my foot. Um, that was November of 2020. So we are not even two years back to running. Um, And I haven't done anything special in those two years. In fact, I was living a pretty unhealthy lifestyle for a majority of it. But the the thing I was doing was still putting on my running shoes every day and just not getting injured and being smart with my training, obviously, in some capacity. But you look back, there's nothing I've done that has been special other than just show up for myself. Mm -hmm. And so, like, if you don't have to change the world. Do you remember my first time trial back after I ran my 20th run was – 1656 and it felt like i just won the olympics and and i've taken a minute and a half off in less than two years which probably doesn't sound like much to most people but that's astronomical it's an eternity and i haven't done any i haven't barely run a 40 mile week so anyways plenty of hope plenty of time 
Yeah. Like I said, I'm, I'm not down on the dumps about it. No, you're not. But it was uh, illuminating. Because in theory, if I were to try to run my debut marathon, I would try to run right around that pace. 555, mm-hmm. 6 I'd, I'd want to break 240 on my first try. Yeah. I think that's a realistic... I would have to train for it. But if in theory... At my debut best, I can hold that for 26.2 straight. The fact that my calf, my hip, my, uh, yeah, maybe even my breathing couldn't handle it for four by mile with 60 second rest, then it's, uh, it shows the uphill battle. But I also, I also know that it's just show up day in, day out, and it'll happen. Was it fitness or was it like things started to go on you physically? Physically. Oh. It was the impact. Much well, better than the alternative, in my opinion. We got back home, and I bent down, and I took my shoes off, and I stood up with micro quad cramps because I hadn't impacted the ground. I've been running – I don't think I've run lower than 3% incline on the Nordic track, which the Nordic track has that flex belt, which I don't think I've run lower than that since. So, I mean, it was it – was, uh, I knew what I was doing. I knew you're, what I was getting into, I should say. You're going to come and, so far. Uh, and it showed me. And yesterday I woke up and felt like I had run, I don't know, like an hour or two in Palmerton or Killington. That stiffness and achiness in your legs and head, yeah. Yeah, but what it showed, what it reminded me is the incredible adaptability of the human body. Yesterday, Macaulay and I went and did like an easy up my little ski hill, mm-hmm. slow, slow walk, jog down, like moderate up, walk, jog down just to get some time on feet. And uh, we were doing about the pace I was holding for six hours in Tennessee a year ago. And eventually I had to cut it at like 52 minutes because my body didn't want to handle that anymore. So it was a great reminder that you can have night and day differences in just a few months of consistency. Yeah. So for whoever needed to hear that, I felt that they should they should hear that, that if you're going through that right now, it turns around real quick as long as you show up. Yeah. And don't set timelines when you're coming back from injury. Like, don't be like, I got to get ready for this race November 1st, let's say, or something. Um, Typically, when I'm coming back from injury, it's more like I'm going to come back from injury. And when I start to feel like things are coming around, then I start looking at the races. Like, never set those timelines if you can avoid it because it's going to rush you back too soon or leave you disappointed. And I don't think you're setting – you don't have anything on your calendar officially, correct? You are just going to follow the process. I even removed something from the calendar when I got home. Good. I removed the only race on my true calendar for the rest of the year I, because it was going to compromise how quickly I wanted to build certain things, and it's it's not ready. It can maybe go back on the calendar, yeah, but right. it can't be looming. Exactly. Smart man. Chicago Spartan Race, is that what it is? No, Tennessee Mile. Tennessee Mile. Got it. I'll still go down there. I'll still run with Ayla, but if... If my legs come around in time for that, yeah, I'll do it. But right now, I don't want to be trying to hit a certain amount of vert each week and pound some downhills to get ready for it because I'm afraid of the race. I want to do the exact right dosage each week. So I just clicked it off there. Smart. Remove some of that that overhanging stress and just build correctly. All right. Well, we're going to have to get together for some running here then in, in the next month or two so we can mm-hmm. you know, get it rolling. Give me four weeks. I'll be ready to handle any workout <laughs> don't say that like for a weekend oh, okay. I, it won't be a great next week after it but it'll be a deload week i'll be able to get through anything in a, in a month perfect should we start uh should we start answering some questions yeah we might as well 
Yeah, how many questions you got? I got 12 screenshots, which isn't bad. We've been somewhat decent on, on keeping up. I've got a handful. Okay, okay. Yeah, let's start with yours. I will start. This is from uh, Bry. Bry says, Q&A question or just DM answer works if you have the time. Diaz's flow training has you doing aerobic and anaerobic work in the same session. Do you think the aerobic benefits are still gained even if we dip into the higher heart rate zones for 10 to 20% of the run? I ask because it seems fun to throw in some strides during longer aerobic work. Thanks. I don't believe that uh, it's like a back and forth battle where aerobic has the upper hand, then anaerobic makes this big play and wipes everyone off the board. I don't think that's how it works. I believe that if you're working aerobic for most of your run, you're working aerobic during that time. And if you dip into anaerobic, then you're dipping anaerobic for a little bit. And it doesn't eradicate the aerobic. Recovery is where the battle is won. If you're doing a lot of anaerobic work, it chips away at your aerobic capacity over time. Partially just because you're not working aerobic as much as you used to. And so you start to detrain in that capacity. There also is some science that too much anaerobic, not too much, but predominantly anaerobic work does erode your aerobic fitness from like a, almost like a poisoning the system standpoint. Mm. But really at the end of the day, no, if you, if you cross into the red and come right back out, you haven't lost anything. You've just spent a little time doing it. Otherwise our, our long runs where we do pickups throughout it would cancel out our long run. If we did a 40-minute run with six strides afterwards, strides are anaerobic, they would cancel out the 40-minute run. So mm-hmm. I think I think that if you if we start splitting hairs, then we could easily get really, really worried about uh, gaining versus not gaining, what we're losing. Yep, because you've gone anaerobic or dipped into some sort of lactate threshold, let's say during a run, doesn't automatically null and void any time spent at lower heart rate zones. That's all still purposeful work so i know we want to we like to compartmentalize things like this is going to do x and this is going to do y but it doesn't really work that way with like physiology and metabolic response so you're not harming yourself i'm just going to piggyback on what you said and you're not harming yourself by going a little bit anaerobic in some of these efforts you're not hindering your aerobic development anyways um I mean, but the fine line comes in what is the purpose of that day? And if the purpose of that day is to recover, well, then maybe you are compromising subsequent efforts potentially um, like the next day or two. But if you're just going out for a long run, heck, I did it this weekend. I did, you know, I stole your term and called them speed sprinkles um, during my long run. Yet my average heart rate was 144, which is probably spot on for a long run for what I want. Most of my run was spent aerobic, like 95% was spent right where I would on a recovery run. But I got some biomechanical efficiency work in there, and I'm, I still I'm calling that an, an aerobic long run. I didn't dip into any yeah. sort of threshold territory. So, anyways, uh, I believe that no, you're not you're not switching systems and then ruining all of your aerobic potential uh, if you do a little harder work in there. This kind of opens the door to a bigger conversation, Kirk. Oh, that probably has been needed. Not a big conversation, but worth saying. Something we probably should speak more about because we talk polarized training a lot, and there's this concept that. It's either you're working hard or you're working easy or you're working anaerobic or you're working aerobic and you keep the anaerobic as a smaller part than the aerobic. But at a, at a cellular, at a biological level, what you're playing around with in your body is really low stress and high stress. Mm-hmm. And that's where people will say, well, I just did my long run on Sunday after my quality session Saturday and long run is not anaerobic. And so it's not, it's not a quality. 
And I would argue oftentimes that belongs labeled as quality because your body doesn't care as much about aerobic versus anaerobic. It cares about high stress versus low stress. And so that's what we're talking about, the sum of the workout. Was it a high-stress workout or was it a low-stress workout? And so, for example, one of the workouts I was doing coming back from hernia surgery was 30 seconds semi-quick, 30 seconds really easy for like 60 minutes, 70 minutes. Never really did my heart rate get above aerobic threshold. But the 30 seconds on were all faster than what I would call my lactate threshold pace. But I spent so much time there, I didn't get any heart rate response coming up. So for the course of the day, that was a low stress workout heart rate wise, but it was relatively high stress in terms of what I put my body through. And so if some people would get bogged down in, well, you were running anaerobic pace, so that's a quality day. Or others would say that was not anaerobic heart rate, so it was not a quality day. Well, the fact is it stressed my body. And so that gets put into that category. And I think that's the important piece. It's it's what Rich is doing with flow training is that he's modulating whether it's high stress or low stress, independent of how fast you're working. Mm-hmm. Internally, your body knows whether it needs to recover the next day or not. So polarized training is really alternating days of high stress and low stress. That's why you can have Norwegians who do polarized training at slower than lactate threshold. And you can have some Scandinavians who do polarized training with only VO2 max or faster 10% of the time and everything like 130 heart rate or lower. It still applies to polarized because it's high stress, low stress, not anaerobic, aerobic. Well, right. Does that clarify or make any amount of sense? Makes it muddier actually, but um, (laughs) but also clarifies. It's like does both at the same time because 80-20 running is like solely in a sense heart rate based, right? It's not taking it. I mean, the principle is... I believe in the book anyways, um, speaks to heart rate effort, doesn't it? Versus like segmenting. I, I could be wrong here, but, uh, but like the, the thing that you're speaking of is like, okay, let's say you go out and you do a two hour long run, um, on the roads and you mm-hmm. keep your heart rate aer- aerobic the entire time. And you look at your heart rate data and you're like, look, I kept that aerobic. So like that was a low stress day, but you're like, you spent two hours pounding and impacting the ground mm-hmm. Just because your heart rate doesn't show that doesn't mean that was a low stress day. In fact, that was a high stress day that's going to need recovering from. And so I agree with you 100%. I'm just trying, now scratching my head with the principle of 80-20 running and heart rate. I believe that it's mostly refers to that, doesn't it? Well, it does. That's what it's been distilled down to. Right. But at the scientific level initially, it's high stress, low stress. Right. You're not wrong, and I'm not wrong, and anyone who interprets it maybe isn't wrong, but it's the how you then apply it. Correct. So if it's 80-20, high heart rate, low heart rate, well, what's high heart rate? Anything over aerobic threshold? Right. So if it's 20% at VO2 max heart rate versus 20% at lactate threshold heart rate, that is higher and lower stress than the other one. So then people would have to modulate down to maybe 10% at VO2 max and 90% easy. But what if you run all your easy runs at the John Albanese now, which is closer to aerobic threshold? Mm-hmm. Now is 80-20 appropriate? The the definition almost becomes confining, where if you can just take it back and look at big picture, was it high stress or low stress? That will put your workout into clarification. Like, I ran easy. I had some pickups, but it was low stress. That does not deserve a recovery day, which means I probably didn't compromise my goal of building aerobically that day. 
if you can keep it low stress, you don't have to worry that you compromised anything. And I think that's my roundabout way of getting back to that point, which is high stress, low stress is harder to screw up than trying to hit intensities in polarized training. We could make this a whole conversation. And maybe we need to someday, mm. but I think to answer that question, was it a low stress day or was it a high stress? And if the point is to do aerobic work with speed sprinkles, you failed if it became high stress. Yep. If it kept it low stress, you didn't compromise anything. I agree with that. Should we move on or do you want to make more points? No, otherwise it's the whole episode. Right, right. We could keep going. That's exactly my worry. <laughs> um, this one comes in from Cameron Peterson. He emailed us. It's titled Ankles, Ankles, Ankles. Uh, great pod changed my approach to running and adult fitness. I'm a longtime athlete playing all team sports growing up, including a lacrosse career that stretched into college. Over the last two decades, I have consistently been prone to rolling my ankles at several times severe enough to require casting and rehab. I've rolled them in all types of shoes from cleats to zero drop to high stack height and beyond. I compete in age group and I'm usually in the top 10. I descend moderately fast relative to the group of racers. Is this something that I can train away from? Drills I can practice, perhaps a different way of looking at trails as I descend. Maybe I just need to slow down. I strengthen my ankles as much as I can to support me when it happens, but it would be great if I could avoid it altogether. Thanks for your help, guys. That is misery. Yes. And I got an athlete, uh, Eric McIntyre, who's going through this right now. He's rolled it for his like third time, and we're getting to the point of like, come on. So I know one guy who needs to hear the answer to this question. What do you think first off? Well, I think there are some injuries that you can injure so bad that they're never the same again. However, for every example of that, there's someone else who's had catastrophic injuries and has got their body back in order. So I believe that whatever someone's doing for injury prevention protocol, you can do more or you can do differently. So if you're not if you're not doing weighted ankle exercises, start doing weighted. If you're not doing banded exercises, start doing banded. If you're not doing um, isometric ankle exercises, start doing isometric. If you're not doing proprioception drills, start doing proprioception. Like unless you're doing all of those and have done it and have tried every version of it and it's not getting better, then there's probably something you can do to get better at that combined with foot strike picking your line a little better. I wouldn't even say descending slower is the better option, but descending better might be the better option. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. What would you mean by descending better than what would be if you were to zero in on that? Well, for example, I tend to roll my ankles more when I get sloppy on my descents. It's not necessarily that I'm bombing and rolling my ankle. I find that the faster the descender a person is, the less likely they are to roll their ankle badly. Yep because they're off the ground so quickly. And usually you can only descend fast if your foot strike is good and if your line you pick is good, which just means you have a less you have less of a chance of hitting the thing that's going to roll someone else's ankle. Mm -hmm. But when I lose focus or when I tend to toe in, if you toe inwards, this was Ryan Wood's issue for years. He runs a little bit pigeon-toed, mm -hmm. as I did for a long time and still have a tendency to run pigeon-toed. If someone who is pigeon-toed steps on the same rock as someone who is duck-footed, the, the same reaction does not occur. If your toe is already pointed inwards, you're already on the outside of your foot, you have nowhere to go but over the top of your foot with your ankle. And so people like Ryan Woods and myself are prone to ankle rolls. Even though you might have strong ankles, like there's no structure underneath it. 
And so when I get tired and when I'm trying to run well on technical terrain, I have to cognitively like jar myself and remind myself, toe out a little bit. Mm. And sometimes that only gets me even, not even towed out. I'm not running duck footed, but it gives me the opportunity to not be predispositioned towards or predisposed towards rolling over the top of a non-existent support structure. Yeah, I think it comes down to a few things. It comes down to both strength and then mobility of the ankle. For example, now I've rolled my ankle once in my my life, and it was last winter, I believe. Um, but I have had my ankle roll and touch the ground. I don't know how many dozens of times in which looks like there's no way I can run that off, and I just do. I limp it off, and I do, and I and it's it doesn't linger. I don't have any serious repercussions. Um, and I think one, I'm, I'm lucky that I played years of ball sports. This gentleman did as well. So I did a lot of lateral moving. Um, but also I think I just got rubber ankles. Like, I think I'm one of those guys that have good stretch in my lower tendons and ligaments and I can get away with it. Um, I think that's changing as I age, but the point I'm getting at is when it comes to your ankle, you need to look at both the stability and the mobility. So that means going through like ramwad, ankle ramwads, whatever that is you can find out there, just making sure that those are loose and open. That ankle joint has a lot of attachments and they're doing everything Bracken said, banded, weighted, any ankle exercises to help. But more than anything, do those things just so you have peace of mind that at least you're checking those boxes and you're not like failing yourself, right? So even if it's not the best plan or the best program, like committing mentally makes you feel a lot better and committed to, um, anti-ankle rolling in the future. So like I would do it just for peace of mind. And then the other thing um, that I would say is uh, I rarely, you rarely hear of people rolling their ankles in a race when they're in race mode. It's almost always like, it seems some people are plodding along on the trails, like you said. And so don't be afraid to go on really non-technical terrain to get your descending stimulus. Like go find a cement road, go find a very groomed trail where you don't have to worry about it. So you can get your, just, you know, your, your hard descending in and that adaptation you want. Um, and then every once in a while, sprinkle in some technical training to keep that, that edge of your sword sharp. But I think it's okay to seek non-technical terrain in order to stay healthy. Cause if you can't mm-hmm. stay healthy, then you're not going to race well. And I know we, we preach race specific terrain, but in your case, I would probably say like, let's shift your percentages a little bit while you work on maybe your mobility and stability and go find some clean running to do downhill. Um, just so you can make sure you get and stay healthy, which is going to help you build better fitness, in my opinion. So that's where my mind first goes. I rolled my ankles a lot playing basketball. Okay. It was counted upon. Every month or two, I would roll it bad and to the point where I couldn't run for a week or two. Mm. And it worried me. I came to my first OCR race, and I rolled my ankle as soon as we were off trail. And I couldn't run for a week or two afterwards. I was like, I just don't know if this type of running is for me and my ankles. But... What I found is that it was always a focus issue. I don't have flexible ankles, and they are prone to rolling. They have firmed up over the years. I haven't rolled them bad like I used to, but for a while they were very loose. I just knew that if I tweaked, I was rolling, and I was out. What it came down to is I had to do mental drill days where I would seek out technical terrain, and I would run it and run it and run it with no music, no podcast, nothing, and just focus on foot plant. And then the moment I felt my mind stop to drift, I had to slam on the brakes, get off the trail, mm. and get my mind back together. And it's the same thing in races. I've talked about this before where I, I yell at myself, like, focus, get it back onto it. Because that's when it happens. Uh, Les Collins, a guy that I coach, and he was 
uh, all pumped up to try to win the the Utah age group race uh, for Spartan about a month ago. And he was right in position to do so. And on he was, his first ascent, he was trying to hold back a little bit. And a guy came up behind him. And Les is like, hey, do you want to get around? And the guy said, no, you're doing fine. But Les felt like he's on my shoulder. Maybe I should go a little quicker. And he rolled his ankle. Yeah. Because your energy was directed a little bit backwards. It wasn't that he doesn't know how to descend. Because he descends in Green Mountain and uh, the Boulder area all the time. He does technical stuff. It's that... A little bit of his focus was on the person behind him. Yeah. And that's how everyone's ankle roll seems to be. When you're dialed in, you don't roll your ankles. No matter how bad your ankles are, it's when you don't... It's it's like the punch you don't see that puts you down. It's the rock or root you don't see that puts you down. And if you are locked in, you generally can learn to see everything. So it might just be mental prep days as much as anything else. Learning to toe out slightly if you're a pigeon-toed runner and learning to never let your mind wander because that's when it gets you. That's why people fall at the bottom of the hill. It starts to even out. It starts to flatten out. Your mind starts to relax, and then something catches you and you go down. It's your mind, not your ankles most of the time. Cameron, maybe your mind's wandering a little bit. You're getting too lost in our episodes when you're out there and... Not paying attention to the trail, but no, you make a very good point. The, most of the ninety percent of the time, it happens when you're drifting off. You're you need to be one hundred percent present in that moment when it comes to terrain like that. I I would bet that almost every ankle roll happens when somebody's daydreaming a little or just easing yeah. off their focus. Yeah, it's a very good point to make. If I look back at all my ankle rolls in running or races or tra- or training. I don't think a single one happened while I was dialed in, and none of them happened on the nasty terrain. They all happen on moderate terrain. Mine too. The type of terrain that you don't feel like in peril, and so you're not on hyper alert mode. And then as soon as it happens, it's like you just you're so angry, your mind just wants to explode because you know, oh, I that was on me. I let that slip, and something jumped up and caught me. My only ankle roll was on a flat cement road and there was yeah. a chunk of ice that I didn't even think would be there. I wasn't even paying attention for that reason. I've never done it on a trail because when it's go time and we descended together and I will say your twinkle toes are one of the most impressive. I mean, at 30% descending on technical terrain, you, I mean, you're the, you're the expert. I was, I was impressed with how fast you moved down. I got a lesson that day on Granite Peak from you about how to descend steep technical oh, terrain. Stop. So, so you, you're, you're the man when it comes to that. I, I even in races, I don't think I've seen anybody defend as fast as you have. I mean, I think I'm one of the better descenders out there, but on that terrain, I don't think I've ever seen anybody descend as fast as you. Focus. And I've never rolled my ankle on that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, anyways, there's prevention in the white room. There is making sure that your feet are planting the right way. And then there is just your eyes never leave your line. Be present. And that's a skill that can be developed. I like it. We're going deep dives today, Kirk. Man, we might not get to them all. Um, Andrew Andrew Lorenzo, uh, an athlete of mine over the big pond, over a couple of big ponds. Um, I saved this one. He asked me this personally. Um, and then I he, we decided to just save it for the episode. So he's got a question for you. Um, sometimes when I'm on the treadmill, I can get to a higher speed with a lower heart rate helps me work on my turnover. I suppose I understand why this happens. The treadmill is doing part of the work. So my heart rate stays a little bit lower in saying that if I jump on the treadmill, I can do maybe a 10 minute mile with a heart rate under 140. If I go outside and I do that same 10 minute mile, my heart rate may jump to 148. This is hypothetical and the numbers aren't exact, but would it stand a reason that if I was on a keep the heart rate in check or recovery day, 
Would going on a treadmill and working at the faster pace, thus faster turnover, be beneficial? Or would it not matter? Not something that I would do all the time because, again, I would like... I got to swipe here because I would like 90 to 95% of my runs to be outside. But sometimes with my schedule at the gym, I have to make do with a treadmill. Is there any logic there or am I grasping at straws? And then he says, P.S. Max gain in pain was hard AF, but God damn it, it was fun. Gained the max gain that week, I guess. Max gain is nasty. And anyone who wants to try it, you have one hour on the treadmill, on stairs, on a hill to get as much vert as possible. You set the incline, you change the speed as much as you want, change the incline as much as you want, but you're just racking up vert. Give her a shot. Yeah, it's a good one and a terrible one. This is an interesting one because I feel like yes. this this question that he asks is a really good question. Um, and it, it's funny because I don't think we even had the super shoe conversation with John Albin when this question was asked. And, and John Albin said, well, I even run in super shoes like a Nike Alpha Fly on my recovery days because quicker running is more efficient running. And, we, mm-hmm. and so... I do that. And then you see Jakob Ingebrigtsen say, they, they asked him about running in super shoes. And he said, well, the goal is to run as fast as possible, as often as possible. So of course I'm going to run in super shoes every day, for example. Mm-hmm. So anyways, so it kind of parallels that, doesn't it? Like running in a super shoe for a recovery effort may allow you to run faster, more efficiently, and thus maybe gain more, I don't know, biomechanical efficiency. And so he's asking the same thing in the treadmill. And I feel like these two subjects are paralleled. Don't you? Yeah. So what's what's your take on it? It's a great problem to have because it means that you're probably taking care of a lot of the low-hanging fruit if this is the type of thing that's keeping you up at night. That or we're worrying about, <laughs> you know, we're stuck in the weeds when we don't need to be. But either mm-hmm. way, I like the fact that this is advanced problem solving here. But my my take on all of this kind of is the same, whether you're talking about running on a treadmill versus outside, running super shoe versus regular shoe, uh, benching or squatting with a Smith machine versus... Uh, just racking and unracking a barbell. And it is that I don't care how much of any of them that you do. I care that you can do the test correctly on test day. And so you need whatever that effective dose of the real thing is in order to keep you accessing all the fitness you build up in other places. In fact, I was just talking with my brother about this, about benching on a Smith machine. One time I, when I first started really lifting, I did all my bench work on a Smith machine. And I think a lot of people would have said, that's really bad. You're not really learning how to bench. But what I was doing is I was able to put out way more force because I didn't have to worry about form. And so I progressed with absolute strength a little bit quicker. And then I did some dumbbell work and things like that. So when I finally had access to a regular bench, I could translate most of it over, but I already knew how to brace and push really well. I wasn't as stable with the barbell as I could have been, but I was actually putting out more power in my training than I would have been as a novice. So that's that's like a, a strength example of how I think about this. If you pair it with the correct piece, which for me was dumbbells to get my stabilization mm-hmm. in, I could bench decently well. Same thing with running. If you only treadmill run, you're going to be in trouble. But if you pair it with whatever effective dose of road running is, you're going to be fine. And that's the shoe, the super shoe thing too. If you're racing on a track in spikes and you do all your work in super shoes, you better get on the track in spikes enough that you can access your fitness on race day. And it sounds like he gets that. He wants to do 90 plus percent of his runs outdoor. So he should be fine with some days where he's just in there working on his best possible stride and pace while recovering. 
That's my long-winded take on all things sports-specific versus training like in a vacuum-specific. Mm-hmm. Well, and his last, I think, question there was like, am I splitting hairs needlessly or not? And I think the answer is, yeah, you're probably splitting hairs. Like either way. But not needlessly. Not needlessly, right. Needfully. You're splitting hairs in a sense where um, I think like either way, the main principle is that you are keeping a recovery effort in check, and that is priority number one. So you've already won. Mm-hmm. You've already checked the box correctly. And that way, if you just want to tinker and see um, if you notice anything uh, between the two, treadmill and road running, then I think you can go ahead because we're still following the principles asked of that specific workout. Um, I, I don't really know the answer to that, though. Like, if you're answering, like, am I going to become more efficient by running on the treadmill at a faster pace? because it allows my heart rate to sit lower. Like I don't really have an answer in theory. It would sort of make sense, but then you have a little less rear chain engagement because of the moving belt. And then you can start arguing that. So I don't really, to answer his question in its barest form, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if that makes it more efficient or not. Well, efficiency is a tricky word Yeah, because there's efficiency for every single modality. What you are going to do is your legs are going to turn over faster with maybe a greater range of motion and a stronger, more midfoot plant while doing the treadmill at your same low heart rate. And so those things will carry over. Are you going to become a more efficient outdoor runner because of it? That's debatable. But if you're doing the outdoor work, then I would say, yes, you will. It's the same reason that pros can get away with running on an alter G or doing some people do their, what's it called? That elliptigo. Why uh, multi-sport athletes can do all their recovery work on a bike or in the pool and only run moderate or fast. It's because you're not necessarily running your easy runs, your or sorry, your recovery efforts to gain running efficiency. Right. And so if you can find a way to get even more of that, then you're probably ahead of the curve. Well, he is running all of his other stuff outside, so he is um, following what you said. So then I think it would be a, a worthwhile thing to play with, we will call it. And it's one of those things. He said, am I splitting hairs needlessly? And I said, needfully. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is you are splitting hairs, but sometimes we need to split hairs to get us through mundane training. True. Like the difference between I'm kind of excited to try some treadmill recovery runs versus a couple of weeks later. Now I'm going to try outside and see what happens. That might be the difference in a great training block and just one that bores you to death. If you have purpose on your recovery days, that's about all you can ask for as a, as a runner. Yeah, and like, for example, on Andrew's training plan, every other week, his Quality Tuesday is on an incline treadmill. I believe in incline work just like you do. So we say, okay, mm-hmm. when you know you're going to be on a treadmill on a Tuesday, let's not go on the treadmill on Monday and do back-to-back treadmill work. And then in the next week when you're doing flat terrain stuff on a Tuesday, you know you'll be outside. So then go ahead and do your recovery run the day before on a treadmill. You could even just sort it out in your head that way, and I think that would make a lot of sense. Um, should we move on? Yeah. Eric Smith. Hello, I hope this is the right place for a QA question. How do you le- how do you learn to run downhill quickly and safely, especially when you live in a flat area? I recently ran Spartan Palmerton and was surprised to find that I could hang for the climbs. At least at first, I was able to run the downhills without falling. I actually fell and gave myself bruises all along my left side during my warm-ups. I can train for climbs by setting a treadmill up and maybe use the stair climber to mimic power hiking, but the downhills require balance practice and frankly, some courage and confidence. 
My two speeds on the hills were very slow, and oh my god, I'm going to die. <laughs> I have the OCRWC in September, and I'm not going to race well or enjoy it if I'm putting the brakes on for every downhill and hanging onto trees. So I'd like to add this to my training somehow, considering I don't have a hill longer than a few seconds down. Man, I mean, what a situation. This is, this is where we earn our money, Kirk. We right? sure do. We are flatlanders training ourselves and others for mountains. And this is where tinkering needs to happen. So I, you've got your methods. I've got mine. You want to lead off this time? Sure. I've let off the first few. Sure. Um, well, I feel you. I feel you, brother, first of all. Um, tough deal. I'm going to just bullet point this for you. We actually, um, I believe we did a training Tuesday episode fully dedicated for training for mountain races when you don't live in mountains. So I would go back mm -hmm. and find that one, first of all, because we're not going to do it full service here. But first of all, your strength is king here, meaning if you can't get slamming downhill pounding, you need to be bulletproof on your leg strength and, and improving your resistance to impact that way. So that means a big focus on lower body work in the gym. And you can mimic that eccentrically by doing like reverse box jumps. You can do plyometric drills and everything to create impact and strain on the body where it has to reverse momentum in a sense. Like let's say you do a jump lunge and you do a number of them where your body is absorbing it momentum and then repowering out of that every time you scissor lunge or jump lunge. So uh, movements in which require impact and then heavy leg strength work. The other thing I'm going to say to you is that now, I could be wrong, and maybe you'll put me in my place here, but you say that you don't have a hill longer than a few seconds to run down. And I believe you within runnable distance from your house. Maybe you're in Florida. Maybe I'll eat my words, but even there, there's bridges. I guarantee if you're willing to make up to an hour and a half drive, you can find something worth your time, and you do it every other Saturday or something like that where that is your focus of the workout. you got to start thinking outside the box a little bit here. I drive an hour 15 to get to my state park that has 230-foot gain hill. And I do that every few weeks because I understand its importance. So I don't care where you live, even if it is a dumb highway bridge, you're going to have some sort of descent ability to create that eccentric load. So I think you're just keeping your mind a little closed there as to your options. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to think bigger and think a little more commitment there and figure it out. Use uh, resources like all trails or just go drive in one day and find something. You will find something. So yeah. strength work in the gym. Working on eccentric load there, plyometrics, and then uh, think a little bigger, sir. Expand your radius. I agree with that. I look at this like, I always talk about video game characters, how you're given certain amount of attribute points to spread out over all your skills. Mm -hmm. So I look at this as if like you create your perfect descending character, you place him in the mountains at altitude, and you put all your credits towards time on feet in the mountains. Well, every time you deviate away from that perfect archetype there, you lower the mountain, you lower the altitude, you lower the access to it. You have to then reparcel out those, those credits into other areas. When I lived out in Colorado and I had Pikes Peak right there, I could descend for 13 miles straight and lose 7,000 feet. I didn't have to spend a second of my time bulletproofing my legs in the weight room. Mm -hmm. I could. It could enhance it, but I didn't need to. Would you tram up or something and drive up, or how would you do that? Uh, you Yeah, you have a cog railway, or you could drive up, okay. um, or you run up. I did a lot of halfway up, hard down. Awesome, cool. So I did a lot of six and a half mile with 3,500 feet descents, or I'd go to a steeper, shorter place. But 
point is I did no lower body strength training at all in Colorado other than some lunges. However, once I move home, now I have to start parceling out those credits everywhere else. You have to do the same amount of work, but in different modalities. And, yeah. and so then we start talking about how does that look? I think single leg box jumping helps you with some of that. I think you can block up the back of your treadmill slightly and even do like 5% decline long intervals or tempos. Those will wreck your quads. They yep. really will. Maybe also the motor of your treadmill. <laughs> so Details. take that with a grain of salt or a grain of sand. But then you have to find what is my version of a hill. Like Kirk said, you may not have a hill, but you will have a parking structure or you will have a bridge anywhere in the United States. And even if it's only a 3% downhill, put on minimal shoes and pound yourself with mm -hmm. hard intervals down and you're going to be wrecked. So you build that piece in and you get a long flowing downhill stride going. And then I think the secret sauce for flatlanders is staircases. Because you get to work the braking a little bit, you get to work that steep descending, and you work on fast feet. And the feet are everything downhill. There's a woman that I'm training right now who's prepping for Killington, but she lives in Europe. And she lives in a place where she doesn't have access to the type of ski hill you would think you might have access to in Europe. And we've been doing weekly stair sessions. And her comment after one of the first ones was, I felt really bad and I got faster as the workout went on. And I put an effort cap on early and you just learn how to move downstairs quick. Eventually you find what is my own little route for getting my feet to the bottom of each staircase quicker. And then eventually your feet are moving so quick, you start skipping stairs and that's awkward at first, but eventually you get good at skipping stairs. And so I think if you compare 50% stair work with 50% whatever parking garage or bridge or whatever concrete downhill you have. Now you've got the best mix you're probably going to find. But you have to pair the ability to handle the pounding with the ability to move your feet really, really quickly and see your line. And stairs are unforgiving. If you miss your line, you're in trouble. And your body knows that. And so it gets really good at turning your feet over quickly and accurately. It's good advice. I got a couple athletes. One lives in New York City proper another one down south and and they the parking structures i mean i just had an athlete go over 2000 feet of gain for his long run on the parking structure where there's a will there's a way and he didn't want to make the hour and a half drive to a decent trail and hill he went to the parking structure talk about damage Whew. i agree when we were doing the filming the tv show spartan ultimate team challenge i went into the stairwell to do a hill workout and i come down and who's in there Jack Bauer is doing a stairwell hill workout. And a couple minutes later, who passes me? Benny Giffords doing stairs <laughs> in there. We've got all these OCR people in one place and they all kind of grasped. And then this, uh, I forget her name, a female comes up and down the stairs as well. We all understood that, and this was in, in Atlanta mm -hmm. and they're just, we were pretty much confined to the hotel in the small area around it. And it was pancake flat and everyone understood, all right, we're going to get our stairs done because that's the way we maintain our hills. I like that. Know what a combo I like too is um, if you do long jumps or broad jumps and really jump into them and really take that impact just consecutive like 10, 15 broad jumps into a run, the impact you can take, or even if you did that mm. off of like an elevated platform, that just smacks my quads almost just like a lot like descending feels I've noticed. So I like combining yeah. that with my compromised work for, for getting ready for downhills. Um, should we move on? Go back and listen to that episode, though, that uh, Training yeah. for Downhills episode, if you're a Flatlander. I, it was way back, wasn't it? We did That was one of our early episodes, I believe. 
I thought we did one last year as well. Maybe we have to do another one. Touch it Either up way, identify is pounding your issue or is feet and eyes. Are feet and eyes your issue? And sometimes it's both, but whichever one is the real issue, do. If pounding is the issue, run on pavement hills. And if eyes and feet are your issue, you've just got to be able to move them faster without falling. Stairs are probably the best way I know of doing it. Hmm. Because you could do speed ladders, you could do jump roping, all that stuff. It's going to help. But stairs are more sports specific. I got to take advantage of more stair stuff. Every time I do it, I'm like, this is awesome. Then I'd like forget about it for a while. And you you take more of a pounding than you'd expect. You do, totally. Um, next question, Douglas Allman Jr. Uh, I have a question about easy runs. I apologize for the length, but I've been waiting about a year to ask this. So bear with me. <laughs> Patience. Um hope it's worth it. Yeah. Since listening to the podcast, I've tried to incorporate easy runs into my training. I've noticed that my legs and heart rate uh, have different definitions of easy. I can go out at a 10-minute pace, which feels very comfortable, but my heart rate is 155. If I want to keep my heart rate below 145, I can't run faster than 13 or 14-minute pace. I ran a road 8K back in March and finished in 4410, which I consider a good representation of my fitness. I feel like there's a disconnect between my speed and my aerobic engine. I'm capable of hitting six or seven minute pace, even at the end of my 90, a 90 minute workout. My easy days feel like I'm going in reverse. Is it possible that my capacity for speed and power exceeds my aerobic capacity? If so, how do I bridge this gap? How do easy days help you as- assess your progress? I realize pace isn't important on prescribed easy efforts, but I feel like I'm stuck. Thanks again for all you do. It's been a huge help. It's a loaded question, and it's one almost every new runner faces. The, the word that you hear associated with new runners versus those associated with expert or pro or just very seasoned runners, how they talk about easy runs, there is one word that tells me where you're at in your running journey, and that is the word pace. Mm-hmm. If someone ever mentions the word pace on an easy run, I know that they're not to the end or the second half of their running journey yet because i don't know really many high level runners who get interested in their pace on their recovery or their easy days nope but that's where we all start when we're new to running or when we haven't when we haven't journeyed far enough into it to get into the other things yet we worry about how fast do we run every day because that's how it all starts, right? You, I went for a six-mile run Monday, and I averaged 10-minute pace, and I got to match that at the very least or beat it on Tuesday or else it wasn't a good run. It's where we all start. Yeah, it is. I'll tell you what. I've been running slower recovery runs than ever, and I'm running as fast as I have or faster than ever on my quality days when it counts. And so just find peace of mind in knowing that slower recovery runs doesn't mean you're backpedaling or not progressing. And the other thing, and maybe I'm reaching for straws here, but this question came in on July 18th, and we all know what happens to our recovery, heart rate, and pacing in these stupid dog days of summer. Mm -hmm. I'll be at the same pacing, if we want to talk pacing, I'll be 10 beats a minute higher oftentimes if it's one of those steamy days at the same pace. In fact, I went and did my long run this weekend, and it was a nice 65 degrees, and I was like, Jess was biking with me. And I was like, my heart rate's not going anywhere today. I was like, it's got to be because it's just cool for once. And so mm-hmm. um, you got to be really, I don't know, gracious with yourself in regards to heat and heart rate on recovery days uh, in relation to its pacing. So just just make sure you're acknowledging what that is doing to your body as well 
And maybe it, it's coincidental your question came in on July 18th, but if I were a betting man, and I am, I'd bet it has something to do with temperature as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, there is one key part of that that I think is worth exploring, which is he said that he can do it at 10-minute pace, but his heart rate wants to do it at like 13-minute pace. And I think there is a pace where when it gets slow enough, it is worth getting rid of heart rate a little bit or changing how you're running. At 13-minute pace you're spending a lot more time on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it maybe isn't as beneficial to you to do a lot of volume at 13-minute pace, even if it's the correct heart rate, as it would be, Kirk, let's say for you, at 145 heart rate. Because at 145 heart rate, you're practicing a stride that mimics your race stride. It's not the same, but it's closer to race stride than the difference between 13-minute and 10-minute. Mm -hmm. At 13-minute, you're really plotting. And I don't mean that in a negative way, meaning you're spending, it's a slow, cumbersome stride. We're at 10, you're jogging. A lot of ground contact time. Yeah, and that might not even be worth practicing. So this, if you're if you're in the double digits for pace, you're a pretty good candidate for run-walk, mm -hmm. for running aerobic intervals for your easy days. So you can run a little quicker and run maybe that 9 or 10 minute pace. The A, it's just way more pleasing and fun. And B, it's actually better for your body. The quicker you're off the ground, the less damage you're taking. Yeah. And so you might be a candidate for doing like 30 seconds on, 20 seconds off, or one minute on, 30 seconds off, or even like three minute, one minute aerobic intervals where you can just get better at running rather than worrying about trying to play that game between, I don't even feel like I'm working at 13 minute pace and it leaves me sore and depressed afterwards. That may not be your case, but it is for a lot of people that we talk to. Mm -hmm. So that that's another way of looking at it or moving your recovery or easy days to the bike or the elliptical or power hiking or, or whatever it's going to be and save your running for when you're running fast enough to not be doing your, your joints a disservice. Yeah, I think it's the interesting thing is he's saying like, you know, I'm like on the RPE scale rating of perceived exertion, he feels like he is running easy. And then he looks down and his heart rate's at 155. He's like, this feels easy. This is frustrating. And maybe you're a candidate. So I understand that. Like if you feel if you're just going off RPE, which right. we did for years before heart rate monitors or Christ, like GPS watches, it was just like, I think I went easy today, but we had no idea. Maybe you're just a candidate to put the watch away and do the RPE thing, or maybe take a play out of John Albin's recent playbook and just go ahead, you know what, and just see mm -hmm. if things go better or worse. Like we, Bracken and I experiment on ourselves and our training all the time, and we only have the perspective we have because we've we've had successes and failures through our experimentation uh, over many, many, many years. And so maybe you're just a candidate to just use the RPE and not look at your heart rate monitor or like John Albin run high aerobic and just allow it to be what it is, but pay very close attention to how you feel on your quality days. Then are you laying a bunch of eggs? Then experiment. You found out the hard way. Are you still popping your quality days? Then you can continue moving on with maybe a little higher heart rate. Um, but you might be a good, good person to experiment with that. That's a very good point. And I think we should close with, we're all operating under the assumption that your heart rate zones are accurate. True. That's always a big question mark. We're saying, yeah, 155 is correct for you and 145, but we don't know that. And I don't know if you know it for sure. I don't know if that's estimated, if that was done off a risk-based heart rate test, if that was done in a lab. So one other thing you can do is just do a little bit more heart rate testing. And you might find mm. that you were right. 155 is totally fine for you. Yeah, it's true too. 
Yeah. And I would say to validate how you feel saying you could run six or seven minute mile at the end of a 90 minute run, that is a pretty big gap to go to 13 or 14 minutes if your capability yeah. is six or seven minute miles. So I understand how you would feel very uncomfortable running that slowly for you. So um, shouldn't have waited a year to ask the question though. Although sometimes it takes us a year to answer them. Uh, <laughs> should we move to the next one? Yeah, I think so. I don't have, I think this is an athlete of mine because it's an email screenshot, but I don't know. Um, it says, uh, lastly, here's a question for the future QA episode. I sent this to you via Insta DM, but no, you don't check it regularly. Um, question for the podcast since you're the shoe expert. Oh, maybe this is meant for you. That would make sense about you not checking your DMs regularly on Instagram either. What? I don't know how I have the screenshot, but. Uh, you speak a lot about shoes for different terrains and races, but was wondering about treadmills. Do you recommend a more minimalist shoe or a more cushioned shoe? Also, should we wear different shoes for different types of treadmill workouts, i.e. incline work versus flat work? Uh, I know you mentioned VJ shoes for grip for sweat issues, but what about girls who may not have a drippy sweat concern? Love you both and look forward to getting an answer so I can stop questioning myself. I know what to do for different terrains, but always wonder what works best for treadmill workout. Thank you. <laughs> well, first of all, I don't understand that concept. The only girls, quote unquote, that I ever train with are my wife, my sister, and my seven-year-old daughter. And they put me into the ground sweat-wise. Mm. They can generate some sweat. So that concept sounds fantastic, but I've never met it. I wish I had screenshot who this is. You'll have to reach out. But uh, It's a good question. And I run in a ton of different shoes on the treadmill because I have a ton of different shoes. Mm -hmm. But I use VJs when I get above 20% incline. Most people don't have a treadmill that does that. Once you get really steep, the belt is just slick. And if you sweat at all, it's a nightmare. So that's why we use it. They have the butyl rubber on the bottom. And I have yet to find any other shoe on the planet that sticks to a treadmill better than VJs soles do. So that's why we use it. Other than that, no, it's not a requirement. But at steep grade the best and to cut in uh i slip on steep grade when i'm not sweating yeah me too like when it gets sweaty in certain shoes it's, it's just the belt and like on my nordic track um the belt is like they got the little knobs on them for grip right there's it's textured and over time those do wear out and in fact i got a bunch of them laying on the floor behind my treadmill jess came in the room the other day he's like what's all this black stuff on the floor i was like i don't know realizing my treadmill belt is starting to break down so point being is that this is sweat exempt. Like you slip on these things, even if you're not sweaty. So this actually all applies to you sweat or no sweat. VJs don't slip, for example. And my hokas will at steep inclines. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Um, other shoes that work. I found Adidas work really well on treadmills as do the new line of Pumas. Their Puma grip is hmm. kind of awesome. So that's, that's worth noting. Um, Shoes are tricky on a treadmill because you can really underthink it or you can really overthink it. But oftentimes, and I was just talking to Brant this morning, Brant Boggs, he's kind of the man. I like him a lot, but he got injured when we went to a lot of treadmill work last year. He said he went too fast too soon. And my question was, or too much too soon. My question was, what kind of shoes are you wearing? And it turned out he was fine. But a mm -hmm. lot of times people, when they start doing uphill work, use more minimal shoes. And it makes sense because you're not hitting the ground but you're also putting your Achilles and your calf at a more extreme angle. And if you put a heel that's built up a little bit, it takes some of that angle out of it. Mm. And so it makes sense to wear less of a shoe, but if you don't have a drop, some people are susceptible to rear chain injuries 
from their heel just being lower towards their foot plant than they're usually used to doing. And it's that it has to stop itself. On the pavement, you can heel strike. You don't really heel strike going up steep hills. So your toe hits and your heel drops a little bit and then you catch it and you're catching it with soft tissue. So that can be an issue for some people. But in terms of what shoe is best, I don't really think it matters. It's finding the one that keeps you healthy. Yep. If your grip's slipping on the treadmill when you do incline work, play around with it a bit. Put your VJs on so you you have peace of mind. But you asked the question about minimal shoes potentially. Um, Yes, treadmills are a good candidate for that because they do absorb some shock. But what's the purpose, I guess? Are you trying to take on a little more damage or are you not? Like, I think it is an easy thing to overthink. I think the only thing I ever factor in on the treadmill is am I going to slip or not when I push off? That's literally it. So just find a shoe that you're comfortable with that doesn't slip when you push off. Um, and you've already kind of won the, the battle. So, um, it's a really good question. I understand. And I do glorify like my VJs work when I sweat on incline, but, um, my shoes also slip when I don't sweat. So, uh, it, I would say like, I don't know. And I don't know what the difference is in the rubber. Like I have a pair of Hoka's like my Evo speed goats. I'm running in place. So I, slippery. They're so slippery, but they're great on real terrain, but it's like, what on earth is that made out of? But the regular speed goat. Yeah. Stick. They're fine. The Evo Speed Goat are one of like the top five most slippery treadmill shoes I've ever run in. It's super bizarre. They're like glazed over. I don't get it. But the bottom lasts forever. Like that rubber on there, it still looks great. And I put so many miles in them. There's some some component. But I don't know if there's a right answer to that question, I think is what I'm getting at. Yeah. You have anything else you want to add to it, shoe guy? No. If you, I mean, if you don't want, if you want regular running shoes that grip, look on the bottom. If you see a tire brand, you're going to be fine. That's Michelin fair. rubber, uh, Continental rubber. It's probably going to help. It's probably going to be good. Um, let's just do one more question because we gave him a long one last week. Yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, we did like hour and a half. Um, and then maybe we can pick through these and like to start off the rest of our episodes coming up or something. But Some buy-ins. Yeah, some buy-ins. Uh, Luke uh, Bodorf. Uh, hey, man, you guys are killing it lately. Seriously, the amount of information I've gained from you has been crazy. I've been running for a long... Oh, he's just complimenting us. Thank you, Luke. Compliment sandwich. He's about to give us an insult. I don't think so. I'm going to go right to the questions, but thank you, Luke. Um, possible Q&A episode question. I hear Justin throw out the idea of putting cinder blocks on the back of the treadmill to create a downhill. I've thought of this before, as I'm in a very flat part of the Midwest, but I have two questions about that. One, since the treadmill is moving toward you, and the earth is not, would you need less percent grade to achieve same stimulus? Could it be more damaging slash stimulating to the muscles? And two, would the wear and tear on the treadmill engine and belt be of any concern? In reverse order, yes, it's a concern. Mm-hmm. Absolutely is. I don't recommend anyone own a treadmill without an extended warranty because they are built to be disposable. I've said this before, but the treadmill industry has their statistics in front of them and they realize that by the end of a year, 90% of them are out of commission, mm-hmm. not in broken order, but in sitting in the basement, yep. accruing dust. That's it. So if 10% of them get used and 50% of those or more fail, they turn a profit. Even if they have to do house calls on a hundred percent of those that mm-hmm. fail because they're just designed to be disposable because they turn such a profit. That is directly from a treadmill insider's mouth. They are designed that way because they have run the cost uh, analysis and it doesn't make sense for them. So know that in advance. I've said it before, but I just re-upped my treadmill. I have four more years of warranty on it and it will not live through those four years. Mm -hmm. 
So you must, yes, you're going to wear and tear it downhill. The issue that happens on the motor, both uphill and downhill, is you momentarily pause the belt when your foot stabs into it. It decelerates it. It may not fully stop it always, but it decelerates it. And the bigger the incline or decline, the more that deceleration force is impacted because you're coming in and kind of stabbing the ground. And that's difficult on the on the motor itself. So yeah, you do raise the risk. And that is worth noting. Well, yeah, you're putting you have a belt. If you have it the the back of your treadmill raised, you have a belt that is moving as it normally would, and now your feet is directly impacting in opposite direction the belt is moving. So you're really jarring the belt in the system there, which I think like I don't think you're gonna wanna like try to simulate a fifteen percent downhill or something like that. You're gonna no. wanna soften it. Um so to answer that, I think like overstriding, which we don't often recommend, but I play around with this on my Nordic track, a 6% decline with an overstride and just pounding every time your leg hits the, the belt, if that's the goal to create damage can be done. But I would be very nervous trying to simulate like, oh, I can go 15% up. I should probably go 15% down. I mean, I think you you may burn something out pretty pretty quick in that regard. So I don't think it takes a huge incline. What do you think? Or decline? This is one of those things I think Nordic Track knows what they're doing. They only go down 6%. Yep. And if I had my own treadmill, which I've done in the past and blocked up the back, I used to have a Star Trek, which was a, a commercial quality treadmill. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never went more than 5 or 6%. Mm-hmm. More than that feels really awkward running, but it really does exaggerate the impact. And it allows you to easily have like 15 or 20 minutes of downhill. So maybe it's not exaggerating the impact. It's just when do you ever run for 20 minutes at a 6% decline? Right. I think 3 to 5, 3 to 6% is all you need as long as you have a warranty on that treadmill. And then you have to decide how comfortable you are not telling the treadmill technician that you had it blocked up and back when they ask you how this broke. Right. Because it definitely voids your warranty. Um, but I, I think it's Fell Runner. Fell, F-E-L-L-R-N-R.com. I think he is one of the people that I've read online about. He's a big proponent of using the treadmill for downhill tempo sessions to just bulletproof Mm. his legs. Like rocks him. So much eccentric damage that he's hobbling his first session or two. But then he adapts really quickly and then can go out and do something like the Boston Marathon or things like that with no real issue with the downhills. So it does work, but... You have to know there's caveats to all this. You don't want to go too steep, and you're probably going to run the risk of hurting your machine. Yeah, but I would almost rather prop up a standard treadmill and go downhill versus use the Nordic track because the Nordic track caps you at like six miles an hour. It doesn't want – because it probably understands the strain it puts on the machine – so you can't descend quickly on the Nordic track at its decline function because it, it, there's a governor on it. Whereas like you could rip on a regular treadmill, which is probably really dangerous when you think about it. But um, I don't know. I think a regular treadmill would give you a little better options. In my experience, people are in one of two camps. They either feel better running on it or they feel better with a bungee or a, a rubber band set up anchored behind them when they're running downhill. Mm. I'm an anchor point person. I feel really awkward, but if I have something there that I can kind of lean into a little bit, I run much better on a decline. So that's worth thinking about. Yeah, good point. But just whatever you do, get a good band and secure it properly because you do not want that thing snapping into your lower back or your butt (laughs) or wherever it's going to hit. It's not pleasant. Nope. PSA. Anything you want to add to this one? 
No. Okay. No. If we add more, we're becoming proponents of it, and then we're on the line when someone gets hurt or breaks their treadmill. Fair. All right. I'm cutting us off there. I accept. We did it. We still have... Okay, let me see here. We still have four screenshots, so we can wedge these in in future episodes coming up. And I have a few on my phone that I said, we'll hit this, our next Q&A. And now it's just going to be the next, next Q&A. But you are not being ignored. You are not. All right, so uh, what's coming up with you the rest of the week, Bracken? You got... um, any spicy workouts you want to share you're doing? Nothing spice, Kirk. I am vanilla, plain <laughs> vanilla for the next eight weeks as I get this body back into working condition and handling stimulus. I'm just slightly increasing stimulus each week. Handle it. This is like training to train is what I would call it. I'm preparing yep. for real training. Yeah. What What's a vanilla, if you can even call a quality session this week for you then? Uh, aerobic threshold intervals. So I'm uphill this week, so it'll be six-minute um, aerobic threshold intervals with short rest at 10% incline, most likely. I haven't decided the incline yet, but it'll be uphill. Love it. And I'll try to get, I don't know, 40 to 50 minutes worth of good quality working on, on that. Hit 10% until you breach or hit aerobic threshold or just get right there and keep it there? How do you know when to stop? No, I'll run at the equivalent... Um, effort or pace to outside Got and it. just adapt that as I go to stay within. Right on. What about you? Um, I'm going to do a little speed this week. I mean, I feel like I need to work some faster turnover. So I'm going to hit the track for my second time in a year. Nice. Probably not going further than 400 meters. We're going to work on some top end stuff. You're going to turn over a little bit. Turn over a little bit. Put on the endorphin pros and go. Yeah. Ooh, endorphin pros. I think so. Got uh, aerobic stairs tomorrow. With some ski erg evening intervals. Beautiful. I have aerobic uphill intervals and assault bike PM intervals. And then Sunday, I'm going to do leg builder. Woo! Lunging and incline jogging. Yeah, that's a brutal one, but I like it. Makes time go by quick too. Yeah. And if by that point I'm beat up, then it'll be lunging and assault bike or lunging and row. I'm going to keep the workout, but switch the modality if need be. Hear that, folks? This man's uh, training twice a day. Man's on a mission. That's my goal. Two workouts a day, even if they're one of them is only 15 or 20 minutes. Cool. Well, I don't know who's coming at you Friday yet for our interview. We haven't done that yet, but maybe it'll be another Crocker, which would be a welcomed. Yes, it will. Yeah, people like listening to, to Macaulay. I got to be careful. He's going to be sitting here and setting me <laughs> at some point. Doubtful. All right. Well, we'll catch you guys later this week, and thank you for listening. Till next time, enjoy the little reprieve from the heat and humidity this week. Oh, thankfully. No sweat puddles this week.